drop. Hey there, everyone. My name is Christian Wynn, the director of Storyfort. And you're listening to Storyfort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Voices Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though this year we have now been postponed until next year in September of 2021, and then we're back to March 2022 moving forward. But hey, at this podcast, we're here, we're still here to tell you about all things Treefort. And today, we're going to be talking with Vanessa Waugh, who is a great novelist and journalist out of the San Francisco Bay Area, who is friends with my co-host, Larry Rosen, and we're going to dig into some of her novel writing, her adventures around the globe, her discussion of immigration and race and the diaspora, and just have a good time talking about literature and the world of books and news. So you can find out more about what Vanessa's doing at VanessaHua.com. And we hope you're well. We're doing pretty decent here in Boise, moving into fall. It's getting cold. The leaves are changing. But uh, we're going to keep this podcast going and uh, tell you about all things Tree Ford every week. So here's some of that. Enjoy. Our guest today is author and journalist Vanessa Waugh, a personal friend of mine, just to blow my own horn here a little bit. Vanessa is the author of a book of short stories called Deceit and Other Possibilities, uh, lauded. Vanessa, everything you write is lauded. It was a New York Times editor's choice. It was a finalist for the California Book Award. Uh, her 2018 novel, River of Stars, was on NPR's Best Books of 2018, which is kind of awesome. And, and Christian and I were trying to decide if you have a new novel pending or not, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, she is also a San Francisco Chronicle columnist, and I don't remember for how long, but I do remember when it started. Um, so it's at least since 2016, because I've known you since then. Yes, that is the, uh, the spring of 2016 is when I started. Oh, okay. So it was right away. Um, she is, and I was saying this by direct knowledge, a very... I don't think you'd like the word prominent, but a very active member of the Bay Area writing community, uh, a supporter of young writers, a person who will do a blurb for you, a person who will be in conversation with you, a person who will do readings for you, a person who really puts her money where her mouth is, and a person who knows how to promote a book. Uh, <laughs> Vanessa, welcome to Story Fort Presents. Uh, voices of Tree Fort. Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. <laughs> <Larry>. <laughs> we have something to do with Tree Fort Music Fest. I know that much. But just to get started, Vanessa, uh, I know I, I think about you when I think about how COVID is impacting writers because you're not a writer who, as I just said, who stays in their silo and just does their work and doesn't like to participate. You're big on community. So starting with that, then, how have you had to adjust? So um, the reissue of my short story collection to see another possibilities was March 10th, which of course was right before, you know, shelter in place orders began in the Bay area. And I remember I was supposed to have this opening event with this other writer who was going to fly into New York. And I, you know, there was a lot of like, well, I'm not sure. And then the Olympics got canceled. <laughs> the NBA got canceled. Like, and then the Bay Area Book Festival got canceled all during that week. And I, and all the signs were like flashing, warning, warning, Will Robinson. <laughs> so, um, so it, it transitioned from, you know, all my in-person events uh, went away and in their place rose up different kinds of Zoom events, whether they were conducted over Instagram and then you could, you bought a book, you could go to like cocktail hour afterwards or panel events are, you know, sponsored by libraries or, you know, all, all sorts of, all sorts of things. So, you know, I still was in conversation with a, you know, two different debut authors fall I've been continuing to be mindful about the ways in which I can still support uh, new and established authors and also bookstores, independent bookstores. It's mm -hmm. book sales apparently are up this year, um, but they fell uh, for bookstores. You know, a lot of this 
understandably, you know, the commerce is happening online. And so there's, you know, if we want, we have to kind of, again, put our money where our mouth is, as you're saying, and if we want bookstores and other places that, that we love festivals, all of that, we have to donate support in other ways, in all the ways that we can. For sure. Let me ask really quick, um, as a follow-up, like how, how well do you think this has worked? I mean, is it, has it been successful? I mean, even just for getting, you know, they're selling some books online, but I mean, just as an author or in the participator in so many, you know, sort of social events around the literary world, I mean, maybe this is the best we can do right now, but it could have been done better. And how has it really worked um, for you personally? Well, it's, uh, I've enjoyed, say, being connected, doing a reading with authors or, you know, fiction writers or poets who are in different parts of the country that I maybe wouldn't have uh, had a chance to interact with or to do a reading with. So that's, that's been fun and to be exposed to their work. But I did read something, I think it was in the New York Times. There was some sort of joint reading with Ann Patchett's bookstore and Book Passage in the Bay Area. And there were like 3,000 people logged on and they sold 15 books. Oh, so, and I think when there's an in-person reading, there is a little bit of social pressure to get your book signed by the author and it's a social fun event. And so the pressure goes away when the events aren't in person. Well, Um, I I just want to say that said, um, you know, my local bookstore's been open um, and they've been sort of like the sponsoring bookstore for a number of events and I had to go sign more books. So that means they oh, sold good. out of whatever they initially had and ordered more. So, um, you know, all you can do is hope to drive traffic to these independent bookstores, you know, whether it's, you know, say like, oh, if you get this book from the bookstore, it can be signed <laughs> or, or whatever, whatever the enticement is. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think it's an incentive, actually, when you're at a live reading to go and get your book signed and have that moment where you actually get to meet the author, especially when the author is, as you are, writer famous. (laughs) It's a little meaningful. But what I wanted to ask you, getting away from book sales and productivity is, I mean, you have always struck me as the rare writer who likes to be around other people. And that seems like a big part of what you get out of being a published author is the opportunity to be around other writers and to be around readers. And how hard has it been? I guess, how hard has it been to not be able to do that? And what percentage of that can you get from Zoom meetings? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think I I do come off as an extrovert, but there are times when I realize my tank feels empty or have been times where it feels like my tank feels empty. So maybe even, you know, the public extroverts do, in order to be a writer, must still enjoy spending vast amounts of time in their their head alone, away from other people. So that said, the pandemic has really overfloweth the gas tank in terms of being, being away from other people. I don't know. You, you miss people. You miss, say, even the friends. You know, you definitely have the friends that you did all the Zoom calls with, played board games with, or whatever at the beginning, and had Zoom drinks, but then that's tapered off. And then now it's like doing some socially distanced activities. But again, that's still sort of a pale comparison. Um, or just, but then there are some other people like where maybe you would only see them say casually at the grotto and you were always happy to see them, but you weren't going to hang out with them otherwise. And so, you know, that's the sort of thing you miss too. Like people you're very fond of, but that opportunity for casual conversation, everything needs to be sort of arranged and mm-hmm. there's the link and, you know. Yeah, we've been, we were trying Spontaneity to- is gone in 2020. And since you brought up the Writer's Grotto, uh, just to explain to listeners who may not be familiar with it, it's a Bay Area-based writer's community that both Vanessa and I were members of during its heyday. But it was a place where people would go primarily to work, but also to talk to each other. This is leading to a question, Vanessa. So how has, I know you weren't coming around to the grotto as much anymore uh, in the last couple of years. Just because the grotto is actually a 
it was in a like an office building in downtown San yeah. Francisco where writers would come and work and mm-hmm. eat lunch. And a, a podcast was occasionally brought out from a closet just off the lunch. Often, yeah, it was so it was formed like back in the 80s, right? With Ethan Kanan and that whole crew, I think. Uh, the, I was just working on something, so it was founded in 1994, okay. and this is the third location it's been at. It's in the south of Market, um, wow. a couple blocks in the ballpark. But by the end of October, it's actually uh, okay. we're giving up the space, go- going virtual for the time being, like other companies or organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's a big question about when are we going to want to gather or take public transportation to get to said location. It's, um, a, it's a if and when type of proposition, I think, right? Yeah. Not necessarily a when. But so, but my question for you then was, you know, how has this changed your work habits? Well, it's not so much been about, uh, you know, can I get into the grotto? But uh, for me, it's the distance learning. I have nine-year-old twin boys yeah. in the fourth grade. At the beginning of the school year, the teachers announced this is the year they're going to be independent. They're going to have to know when to log on to four different times for the different classes. I'm like, really? And so that has not really been the case. I would say my writing time has been more fragmented or my hours of power are in sort of the late morning, but that's also when they're in school. So you know, I'll end up writing on the weekend or, or at other times it's fine. I think at the end of the day, you know, I actually have gotten some things done that I've been excited about, but this is always going to take longer, but the people receiving it or taking a look at it on the other end, I also know they're dealing with the same thing or some, some aspect of it. So it's just remembering to be kind and patient with yourself and with others right now. That's, that's the only way you can sort of uh, get anything done. And how do you break it down as far as working on fiction and working on your column? Uh, well, so I just turned in my manuscript, to my editor. So they, uh, when my, yeah, when a river, thank you. When a river star sold in 2016, it was a two book deal. So it's, a, it's in the hands of my editors right now. And so while I'm waiting for that, um, I've been working on essays, not just for the Chronicle. I have one coming out in the New York Times next week. Ooh, oh, fancy. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then, um, and I just been working on what turned out to be a novella. So we'll see what will happen with that. And then um, reporting, um, Larry, you may have seen it from my social media, uh, but I've gotten into foraging. Yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about that, <laughs> that thing that seemed to be spewing rocks at me. I didn't. Oh, right. That uh, sort of like, devil plant that had all the strange seeds um anyway uh that which i think is a hallucinogenic but i i didn't touch it <laughs> but anyway as as um, <laughs> this is a long way of winding up to I, i'm working on a you know a pitch for maybe a long-form piece about forging um you know different essays so just trying to make use of what's in my life that is possibly also of interest. Uh, I mean, I get this question a lot, like how do you, you know, juggle motherhood and column writing and writing fiction. And I think you just have to make use of the material that you have in multiple ways. So like the way I would roast a chicken first night, you know, like the, I think Kamala talked about this, like I roasted the first night, the second night I have chicken sandwiches and the third night I have chicken soup. So I take, whatever experiences I have in my life and had the experience of enjoying it, then the experience of writing about it possibly in a column, then the experience of possibly incorporating that in my fiction, maybe in sublimated or sideways ways, but it all has to go towards, I don't think compartmentalizing those aspects of my writing interests are helpful because you just have to, again, make use of what you have. What yeah. about what about the different muscles you have to use to use it in fiction versus using it in an essay versus using it in a column? Well, definitely um, it's, you know, a marathon versus a sprint. And there is a pleasure in being able to write something and get feedback a few hours later and mm-hmm. your responses like a few days later. And so, um, and just kind of figuring out like, what's your point in 700 words <laughs> and, and, you know, being able to cut through the noise, but also the sort of the intimate relationship 
that you have, um, you know, there's this, I go on this morning walk and there's this couple who always is reading the paper through the window and I, I waved at them sometimes, but my fantasy is to sometimes like for them to sometimes like quickly look up in astonishment and realize <laughs> that the column they're reading was penned by this person. Oh, walking by. Yeah. So is your picture in, I, you know, yeah. I have to admit yeah. I read the column, not living in the Bay area, but tell us a little bit about the column and maybe, you know, so what that experience would be like. Oh, sure. I but I do recognize. <laughs> but I do want to share something. Um, Larry, you maybe don't even remember, but you once were at the gym and you took a picture of my short story collection and sent it to me. Yes, there was a guy reading it. He had it. He, he actually he had it. Yeah, he was like on a machine and he had it next to him. And I was like, <laughs> took a little picture. That's right. I totally remember that. <laughs> yes. So um, th again, that would be sort of like, I don't know, in the writer bucket list to actually come upon totally. someone reading. Better than my experience of once walking my dog and stepping over someone had thrown my column on the ground. Okay. <laughs> oh well, God. at least it was not at the bottom of the birdcage or something. True. Yes, yeah. I did ask. My dog one. had enough respect to keep walking. Yes. yes. Okay, but um, but in terms of my column, um, it's on many things. Often, I'll write about social justice issues. Mm -hmm. I'll write about say, you know, but through the lens of being, uh, you know, a mother, the daughter of Chinese immigrants, all of my different identities. And, you know, just, it, it's an opportunity to sort of write about whatever I want. Um, you know, anything from what's it like to go back in the museums now that they've reopened, or hmm. to go back to foraging. Today's was about um, bay nuts and acorns, both which were sort of staples for uh, Bay Miwok and other uh, Bay Area Indians. I don't know, it's, it's just been really fascinating to sort of been able to share something that I'm excited about with readers. Do you think that process is something innate to you or do you think it's something that you learned as a journalist? You know, the idea of seeing an acorn and not just seeing an acorn but going, I wonder what, you know, this acorn's role was to this tribe or what, you know, thinking about oh, what about what a big acorn versus, you know, Privately owned, grown acorns, you know where I'm going. Just the idea of taking, a, taking a, an item and developing a story out of it. Is it part of you or did you learn it? I think I'm a fundamentally, if one of my core traits is that I am curious. I'm curious, George. <laughs> so as a kid, it probably got me in trouble. Oh, actually, this is a very classic Vanessa story. I remember we were learning geography and we learned about West Virginia and Virginia, and I raised my hand and I blurted, is there a North Virginia, an East Virginia, and a South Virginia? And I got benched. I, I, I had to miss out on recess. <laughs> that seems like a logical question. I know, I was not being sassy, but... <laughs> so I don't know if I answered your question, but basically I think um, yes. a, a natural curiosity and then it's just honed like why and what if is something that I'm thinking about all the time. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I'm curious too, like with like that whole sort of like step by step by step sort of the column to, you know, our discovery of the column to fiction. Do you have an example or two that, that, or that really worked like something that you know maybe it was in your novel you know river of stars i didn't know particularly like some of that research if you had done about i think it's perfume day perfume oh, right exactly and all that i mean that kind of institution where mothers come from china you know near to birth their children and get u.s citizenship and i thought perhaps that would be a a gem in there, but maybe that's just something you knew about, you know, over on the side. But I'm just curious, like maybe like a great example of real life and column to fiction for you. Oh, sure. I can, um, it's, this is fun. So, uh, so my novel, A River of Stars, I've always said, um, it's a pregnant Chinese Thelma and Louise. <laughs> and it's about two very pregnant Chinese women on the lamb um, on their way you know, they leave one of these maternity centers in Southern California, they flee, they hide out in San Francisco's Chinatown. And I became aware of these centers when I was pregnant myself and living in Southern California through news reports. And just the neighbors were baffled why all these pregnant Chinese women kept showing up in the neighborhood. Uh, it almost sounded like a brothel in reverse <laughs> to just have like an endless stream of, of pregnant women. Um, 
but how it sort of manifested, you know, and I did wonder what was it like for women to be so far from home at one of the most vulnerable times in their life. And so um, the way it manifested both in my book and in my journalism is when you come, you stay a month um, after giving birth because there is Chinese tradition of sort of staying in bed and eating special foods like boiled pig trotters that's supposed to like nourish you and uh, help with your milk supply. Um, and so I ended up doing a, a story, like a nonfiction piece on the science of it. Because I, I was curious, like, do these traditions hold any water? And so I was able to do this fun sort of reported science feature, you know, that wove in a bit of my own experience. I actually didn't do the duoyeds, the, the laying in, but it was, um, but there are aspects of it. Although you might think like, oh, that's strange to eat these foods or you're not supposed to leave the house. But I did think it was interesting to sort of consider in light of how, you know, in the U.S., it's like, you know, that celebrity lost all her baby weight in two weeks and she's back to exercising. And should we really be rushing to get back to work immediately? And is there something to be gained from kind of thinking about how other cultures treat birth? Another example is uh, I actually grew up in a town where and I heard, knew about this for a while, or one of my husband's fraternity brothers had been this science major at Cal and he, you know, tried biotech for a little bit, but then he got famous, hugely famous in Singapore. And there was someone else from my hometown, same story, went to a rival elementary school. I didn't know him then, but he ended up finding fame and fortune in Hong Kong. And so, yes. As, as what? Oh, uh, just uh, <laughs> you know, the, you know, good looks, um, uh, you know, Chinese face, but American accent, you know, sort of as singers, actors, uh, TV. Yeah, okay, hosts. okay. So nothing yeah. related to what they were doing. Oh no, 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 no. Daniel Wu was an architect major, and Alan uh, Young was a was a biotech major or a biology major, MCB or something like that. And so I knew about that. It sort of became a subplot in A River of Stars. Um, but it also ended up, I ended up doing a magazine story, uh, California Sunday Magazine, about uh, when Daniel was sort of making a bid for stardom in the U.S. And so, so, so yeah, like it, it was, to, I'm, I guess in that Venn diagram, I'm like, this is just something I'm interested in. And it mm -hmm. may manifest in different ways. Um, of course, I would never make something up in the magazine story. But that's maybe why uh, I enjoy fiction, too, because then it gives me license to sort of go where the official record ends. Well, it's interesting, too. It's not only something you're interested in, but something you had access to. It's people that you knew, knew or knew of. And did you, uh, I, one of the short stories in, in Deceit, was about a K-pop star, wasn't it? Or a Hong Kong pop star? Right, right, exactly. He gets okay. in the same similar situation where he gets involved in a sex scandal and then hides out in his hometown. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I thought so. I, I feel like there's a theme emerging here, and, and that theme is that a lot of the things that you do are personal, are things that you're interested in. And I'm wondering, you know, if you, if you Google Vanessa Waugh, after you turn up your huge Wikipedia page, <laughs> you'll find a number of inter interviews, and most of them highlight on how you write about the immigrant experience. And that, I remember, you know, just talking to you around the grotto and having you on the grotto pod that one time, we talked about it in, in, in detail. And I'm wondering, I'm, I want to put this right, I don't want it to come out wrong, but how much of that is you finding your place and trying to figure out how the immigrant experience has affected you. We talked about feelings of otherness too, I think. Probably. Um, but I just wanted to say something funny about the Wikipedia page. Um, it didn't have a photo for the longest time, but then I did a reading in on this rainy day in Northern Virginia and <laughs> Suddenly, there was a photo of me from, photo. from the photo, but I was totally spooked because there were only like maybe 20 people in the room. <laughs> and so someone took the photo, you know, that's the crowdsource beauty of Wikipedia and like uploaded me. You know, what's funny about that is when I look at that, I thought that is exactly what I imagine a Wikipedia picture to look like. <laughs> kind of blurry. Yeah. Like, she doesn't know the picture's <laughs> being taken. <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about going in and like, just putting in your own picture? And they're not allowed to. It's, no. 
It's oh, well, well, maybe we could do it for you. <laughs> it's fine. I, I actually kind of get a kick out of someone deciding they needed to uh, further public knowledge yeah. by posting, um, by taking this photo and posting it of me. <laughs> Absolutely. I love so, it. Um, but in terms of what you were saying, Larry, um, I remember I, as part of this conversation related, you said, oh, I think you're really good at Twitter. And I'm like, I am? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yes, I am. Of course, it's a strategy. No, I mean, I think it's things are only of interest if uh, come off as authentic or if um, if you're truly interested, in it. if you're like a publicity machine just blasting out content, it, I think it'll be transparent that you your your agenda is only mm-hmm. whatever to to promote yourself when in fact there's different things that I'm interested in or make me laugh or um, that I want or that I think are important and I think should be shared. Um, but the question you raise about, you know, oh, do I feel like, oh, the, is this the, whatever, the niche that I get thrust into or, you know, mm-hmm. am I feeding the expectations? Um, and, you know, and, it, and it's interesting because um, it makes me think about, River Stars, besides being about the immigrant experience, is also about motherhood and the friendships that women form, you know, between, you know, between older and younger and and female friendship. You know, Angela Garbs, um, who is Filipino-American, she wrote um, a book about motherhood, Like a Mother. It's called Like a Mother. Mm -hmm. And she pointed out, like, so often when you see these lists of, like, books about female friendship or books about motherhood, it's always about white women when in fact like why shouldn't all these other ex- shouldn't my bookness um, be considered about those things too um and but 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 yet on the other hand what i love so much about having my books out in the world is realizing it resonates with people in different ways uh mm-hmm. someone wrote a re- review of my book that talked about how it's about female empowerment and feminism. I'm like, I suppose it is. (laughs) Or um, another woman wrote me and said she'd been having a really hard time postpartum, but then my book was one of the first she read and it just made her feel visible and seen and really helped her. So, um, So yeah, I mean, so whatever I put out in the world, be it my book or my nonfiction or a tweet, like hopefully it'll reach people, the, you know, reach people in the way that they need to, to be yeah. reached. Yeah. And I feel like in, in deceit, I felt like the theme to me reading it, I could be wrong, was always people asking the same question. Where do I belong? Do I belong? Where do I belong? Which seems like, a, you know, you take the immigrant experience, that's part of it, but where do I belong is such a basic question and you're like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I press my case. Uh, <laughs> I have, yes, I did have a question that kind of, you know, maybe piggybacks off some social media things and your, your, your Twitter skills. But it goes back to like a frontline when you did frontline mm-hmm. back 2007. And I got a hold of some of that stuff. I mean, just doing my, my modicum of research since I, you know, just become familiar with your work through Larry. It was about like citizen journalists in Thailand in, 19, in 2007. And basically this idea of a conglomerate of people gathering news. And there was an interesting comments in the threads and things like that about it. Will this work? In 2007, like, oh, this is a really good idea. It will take journalism out of the hands of, of journalists or maybe like professional journalists and put it in the hands of the people. And I'm just really curious, like, you know, obviously here we are 13 years later and a lot of that's really not worked out very well. And a lot of it kind of has. I'm just kind of curious what your take is kind of somebody who was there, kind of this of this, uh, this movement of citizen journalists. Um, so I, it's going back into the Wayback Machine a little bit, I suppose. For yes, you, maybe exactly. Yeah. And, um, it was actually, it was in um, South Korea, but the, but this sort of movement was happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, all over the world, you know, it was called Huffington Post here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was called Oh My News in South Korea. I mean, and I think to the extent that people, what can be fun about, um, when I say like, you know, why, um, what is it, it, you know, 
it's fun to engage with the, it's rewarding and fun to engage with the world that way. And I think that's what uh, citizen journalists or any of these, you know, there's citizen scientists, right, who contribute to this um, app I use all the time for foraging called iNaturalist. Like, to the extent that feet on the ground, hands on, you know, are going to be able to take many more pictures or shoot eyewitness videos, you know, many more than professional journalists that could be deployed. I mean, think about all this stuff with uh, police shootings and how, how that's changed everything with cameras on our cell phones. And so, you know, and I think there's a question out there, like, is there a way to float up the best of citizen journalism? I think that's something that Medium is attempting now where you, you know, have this big platform and you have editors who kind of are on the lookout for what to, to float up. And so I think the impulse is still there. And, um, but the question is like, how are they, are they being paid fairly? Self-publish, if you're publishing all these works, like how much can it be vetted? I think those remain unanswered questions, but, you know, I think they're, you know, I found them inspiring, um, but yeah, it's a question right now, like, and, you know, would people necessarily want to call themselves journalists when there's so much mistrust of like fake right. news and, and all that? <laughs> yeah. And, and, well, and to piggyback on that, you were out of journalism for a while. And when you came back, things had changed. So how did that approach, how did that change the way you approached doing that job? Well, I went from, so I went off to grad school in 2007 and I continued to freelance, but sort of, uh, you know, it, it gradually ramped up and then scaled back when I had the kids and then sort of increased again. But I think the biggest change was this expectation of being really out there on uh, social media, on all the platforms. Um, you know, it was only yesterday, actually, that I signed up for TikTok because I'm doing research on a story. But <laughs> it's sort of like, it's not even on my phone. I couldn't figure out how to use the search function. I never got on Snapchat. Like, I'm, I definitely reached the get off my lawn, you know. Yeah, you're, you're above the maximum age requirement, I yeah. think. Yeah, but I guess my point is, it's like, I think there's probably ways in which people who are, who are in the newsroom or, you know, who, who are beat reporters have to engage online that I don't necessarily have to deal with. Like Facebook just was sort of becoming, I was like, I remember using it as a research tool and that was like sort of like cutting edge, you know? And then, and then I kind of left uh, daily journalism and then, you know, now it's all about I don't know, podcasts and, you know, Twitter and, and, and all that. And, you know, I, I, on one hand, it's like, these platforms all have, you know, things that are appealing, but I'm also thankful that it's not a requirement of my job. Well, and also, since you're not on a day, you know, a reporter, you don't have the attendant need for speed that they have now because of social media, you know, to where, it, especially, I, I, I'll admit, I consume a lot of sports media. In sports media, being first is so much important, more important than being best. How so, Larry? I'm going to ask you a question. I don't consume a lot of, you know, sort of like deep dives of sports. Well, it's not the deep dive stuff I'm talking about. It's it's finding out who got traded or who got suspended or who tested positive for COVID or who signed what contract or who's in, who's out. You got it. You know, there's a guy who, um, he was at ESPN, but now he's not. His name is Adrian Wojnarowski. And he was always the first. And they would call him Woj bombs. He would drop a Woj bomb on Twitter. <laughs> and like, it must be true. Woj said it. And then the next, you know, an hour later, everyone else would have the news. And that's, he made, he built a whole career, not out of being a writer, but just out beating the guy who got the information for and got it out there first. Oh, of course, the problem with that is if you're wrong, which yeah. sometimes people are. Well, I also want to say, put in a pitch. I would always, um, and I have had editors who sort of agreed with me, that sometimes you don't want to chase the ball that everyone's chasing, that you can get what we kind of came up with this term, conceptual scoops. Like no one would beat you on that story because no one would even think to think of that angle. Even, even when I was in daily journalism, you know, there were the stories you had to, you know, there was competitive pressure, but then I always was appeal. You know, what appealed to me was like coming up with stories that were there, uh, you know, that would, would be impactful, but you know, it was also it was also a matter of lens um, yeah. rather than just yeah. Do you think that's still possible? Definitely, especially yeah. I, it just people have come 
into newsrooms or situations with different experiences, not even, again, it's having that antenna up, like, wait, I think this might be a story, right? right. Or even I, I didn't pursue it because um, I just didn't have time, but I was hearing weeks before any news story um, were coming out that people were going abroad, uh, were starting to go abroad back to Asia to get to evade the sort of um, pandemic that was sweeping onto U.S. shores. Like I knew there was a fantastic story, but I just didn't have it in me to pursue it. Uh, yeah, I was telling, I think I was telling Chris the other night, like that's the big secret about journalism, is that a lot of times. It's stuff, the, it's people the journalist already knows or it's sources they already know or it's stuff they already know, you know? Well, yeah, it wasn't anyone I personally knew, but I just began hearing about it. Mm -hmm. so. And I do yeah. think that's interesting that like, that approach to journalism is I think what good fiction does too, um, perhaps more, I mean, maybe not just short fiction, but I'm, yeah, I'm a huge consumer and writer of short fiction and all that kind of stuff and like finding the way to tell a story in that way that, nobody else has before i mean it's it's obviously you're not turning it around in you know 24 24 hours or something like that like you are in journalism but maybe that instinct or that sort of uh curiosity as you mentioned before and that you know sort of this way you are as a writer crossed over both from finding that other outsider kind of journalism piece and also sort of trying to find a new way to tell a story that's uh not completely true, we'll say. Or it's true, but it's not all fact, we'll say. So, <laughs> but yes. I don't know. There's got to be some stories sometimes where you see it and you go, this would be so much better if X, Y, and Z happened, but it didn't. So it'd be a better piece of fiction than it would be a piece of nonfiction. Right. <laughs> yeah, I have a hard time writing nonfiction because of that, I feel like. <laughs> I've worked as a journalist. So I've never like done a lot of fibbing in that, uh, or any, we'll say, to go on the record. Um, <laughs> But in trying to write like personal essays and sort of creative nonfiction, I find it, I personally find it difficult just because of what Mary just said. So I'm like, oh, there could be a better turn here. <laughs> my life yeah. more interesting, you know. So, and then I guess, I don't know, oh, Larry, you're getting ready to ask. I've got one other thing, but most you of it's related. I was going to change, change speeds. You were saying like you went off to graduate school, which was an MFA. Correct. Yes. So, which so your MFA in fiction writing? I'm assuming, and at UC Riverside. Ur yeah. Riverside. Yep. And at that point, you had been working as a journalist. It seems like you already had the PBS stuff out there. And so, what? What? What was that all about for you? Like, why fiction in the midst of a journalism sort of like rising journalistic career, all that kind of stuff? So. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. So I, I've been writing short stories since I was a little girl. And my identity was I am going to write books of fiction. But, you know, I also love this idea of being able to go ask people questions, like just go up to anyone I want and ask, start asking questions. Uh, I actually had a column in college, too, which, which I loved. Um, but I pursued journalism for a couple of years expressly after graduation. And I remember looking at some of my old stories um, I'd written in college and thought, these are pretty good, but do I remember how to do this? <laughs> and being a little bit spooked by that, I don't know if any of you've ever had that experience. Um, so I, I ended up taking, uh, you know, joining workshops, uh, joining writing groups, um, you know, plugging away, you know, printing out stories on the newsroom printer and like rushing into the printer to like grab it and then sending it off to literary magazines. Um, but uh, it was on um, a reporting fellowship to South Korea where I was chatting with another uh, journalist. And I said, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. And she looked at me and said, then write a book. And she was just making small talk. But it made me realize I needed whatever way I felt, you know, would work in my life to center the writing that was most important to me in my life. So this doing it on the weekend at lunch wasn't going to cut it. And also totally quitting my job probably wouldn't have cut it either. I think I'm just too ingrained as the daughter of immigrants. Um, so, you know, UC Riverside offered, you know, full, fully funded program, you know, stipend. I got, would get teaching experience, all that. Um, and also access to teachers like Chris Avani and Susan Strait and Reza Aslan. One thing that perhaps made it easier, I don't know if we all remember back in 2007, journalism felt like 
a, a burning house sliding off a cliff. <laughs> so I was able to not only go to grad school, but get a buyout package oh, good. To, to sort of send me off into the sunset. Um, but then of course things shook out or things changed and, you know, and then I found my way back to the paper and also being able to write for other outlets um, as a freelancer has been really in, you know, I've enjoyed that as well. So, um, but you know, but like on the flip side, you never know, like every time you freelance, like 10 different pieces of paperwork and like, it's, it's different. There's trade-offs, right? So, um, but for me, this is, you know, this is what's been working for now. It seems like at the time though, must've been a hard decision to make just for the sole reason. I mean, yeah, newspapers were in trouble and you did get a buyout, but I mean, you were making a decision to get away from a sure thing and go to something that wasn't a sure thing. I mean, everyone will tell you, oh, fiction writer, you're never going to make a dime writing fiction. How are you able to navigate that? I mean, I guess getting the buyout helped. It was You might have taken that as a sign from above or something, but it still must have been a difficult decision. I think um, I'd done this training program where it was for Asian American journalists and it was to help us get into management. We wanted to, but like half the people in the training program were like, I need to figure out how to change things or I'm going to leave the industry entirely. And so I think that happens, what, maybe 10 years into anyone's career. Um, so it was like, sort of like, not only it was the timing of my career, but also the timing of the industry. And right. that said, I think my parents were super worried. They, you know, kept asking, like, I, you know, I got an agent, you know, my first agent, and they're like, oh, so you, she will definitely sell the book. And I'm like, she's trying. <laughs> and so it, or like I, I then I got this uh, fellowship at um, the Steinbeck Fellowship. And one of my uh, husband's neighbors just said, like, so at the end of it, you'll have a book. I'm like, well, I'll, I've written a book. <laughs> but again, who knows when or who will buy it. I mean, and I think actually that probably that concern never fades for um, a writer. I was, I was talking to someone who like has been in the New Yorker and like all her books have done really well, but she said, you know, two books ago did better than the last book. So she did sell her next book, but just, it doesn't matter how lauded you are. Yeah. One of, one of the, I'm not going to say great things, but one of the educational things about being in the writer's grotto was meeting so many mid and late career successful writers who were at wit's end, who didn't know what to do next. But I wanted to shift gears again because I wanted to ask you, earlier I asked you if being a journalist was something you learned or something that was innate. I am flummoxed at the idea that someone who was a journalist can not only learn to write short stories, but learn to write a novel. So maybe you can help Chris and I both out. He's got two books of short stories. I have a suitcase full of thousand word newspaper columns. How do you do a novel? Did you learn that in grad school? Well, I worked on it. You know, I, I brought a novel, to, a partial novel to grad school that flew out the window after the first workshop. <laughs> but then I started on another novel, um, which ended up not selling initially, but then is now my next book you know, 13 years later. Um, I mean, I, cause I went to grad school thinking I need to learn how to write a, a book, a novel. And I didn't know how to do that. And it, it felt again, but I definitely know people who didn't take that route and just sort of never went out for a, a few years and that's how they finished their novel. Um, you could do that and you might end up with 500,000 words. that isn't a novel. That is true as well. Or as she put it, she also got really out of shape and never saw her friends. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even have a novel. <laughs> no, no, she did. She did. She did. Um, but, uh, but in terms of how, um, I mean, the thing is every time you start a new novel, you're like, huh, do I, do I remember how to do this? But I guess I would say with a short story, I think it's closer in some ways to a poem. Like it, it continues to resonate, um, after you finish, whereas a novel feels like you've been through this journey, like the subplots, like everything coming together, you know, there's um, a feeling of like, okay, I can sort of, I'm going to put this away now. Um, and so in terms of just figuring out how to write a novel, you know, obviously it's not a bunch of short stories strung together. Although I think there are some collections that pass themselves off 
as novels that do just that. That's um, <laughs> well, but I, and then I think that's sort of like pressuring from the marketing department to mm-hmm. pitch it as a novel where it's really a book of short stories. And they shouldn't, I don't know, I don't like how one gets valued as if like, oh, let's slap this on because I think it's going to sell more copies. Um, but I think it's just about, and I don't even think novels are about digressions, but it's just about sort of like, sort of like ebbs and flows as they you know, build towards something. But then even then, like the shapes of novels are all very different. Um, you know, I enjoy reading autofiction. I'm probably never going to write it. <laughs> but, you know, they're going to take a meandering spiral shape that is not really the form that my work takes. Do you outline? I do not. Oh, well, I reverse outline. I write the first draft bag the baggy 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 first draft with all it's like sort of dead ends and wrong turns and then I sort of go back and I'll um what I do is I try to figure out what's at stake in every scene and often uh the scenes where you're like I can't put a finger on it why this seems a little boring or it's kind of drags it's because nothing's at stake in the scene right Mm -hmm. so um I'm very much like intention obstacle you know, intention, obstacle, repeat, intention, obstacle. I mean, and it's, I, 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 I don't know. I think the thing is, I just, I just don't know um, before I write a book, like where I want to go with, I feel like it'd be like trying to paraphrase something that is full of, you know, tapping into your subconsciousness and that, you know, no one's really figured out the automatic writing machine yet. And hopefully never. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That would yeah. Those four hundred monkeys typing out War and Peace. Right? I mean, yes, the algorithms that can write short stories or novels are probably. I mean, I had a friend who was working on one of those, trying yeah. to. Yeah. And it was impossible. Oh. He was trying. It was based on like Dennis Johnson stories, and he was like trying to figure out how to do that. But that <laughs> seemed like a really bad idea. But uh, yeah, I mean, but also, do you feel sometimes like yike? without an outline you're, you might I don't know if it's a waste of time but it's sort of like you're you're using so much more time to compose than you might with an outline that's one of the things that I've always sort of struggled with in you know, going in between that so yeah well or even um well so a river of stars in a parallel universe there are rotating narrators like many more rotating narrators as as it sits now there's um Scarlet the main character and a couple chapters with um her lover, Boss Young, and uh, this smooth operator, <laughs> Mama Fang. Like, but 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 in an, in a parallel universe, the way I originally wrote it was more like um, Jennifer Egan's Goon Squad, where it. So there was a risk in taking that approach, and I had to set you know had one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is the best version of approaching it this way but this is not the version that is going to make it in this universe <laughs> so so some of the well, some of those standalone chapters did actually end up in my short story collection so they didn't go away and in other ways um other aspects ended up sort of absorbed i called them you know you know vanishing twins I feel like I have heard this term. It, it, it's been used in some interview I read somewhere. I feel it's, like it's a little gruesome, but sometimes people are oh, are know. are born and then they'll like have DNA strands in them, or like not like an extra ear, but something will make it clear that they basically absorbed their Another twin. human, like yeah, you, in yeah, the utero. Yeah. So yeah. so in yeah. that same yeah. way, I feel like it wasn't a waste of time. I needed to write those other versions to get the book. I was going to write. And in, and in any case, the final version absorbed parts of the, I don't know, ears and ribs and DNA of that other version. <laughs> if that's not too grotesque. Larry's cringing right now. You're a little grotesque. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it, it all, it all informs it. It's just, it's funny because as, as someone who writes short stuff, that just seems like what you wrote like 30,000 words. It didn't get used. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Well, I never call it, um, I always have a file called scrap with every project. And like, it's better than saying like, I deleted it and went away. It's like, I just put it to rest. Oh. It's resting here. And yeah. I, maybe I'll use it or maybe not. <laughs> yeah. 
the scrapyard. I mean, there, you know, sometimes you got to take your car to get some repairs and you, you find some stuff in the uh, scrapyard and all that. But Larry, why are We've uh, we've reached an hour, my friend. And what I've been hoping for the last ten minutes is that every time Vanessa lifts her cup of tea, it'll be bigger. Because it's pretty big <laughs> to begin with, and if it had just been getting bigger for the last hour, that would have been awesome. It'd be very Alice in Wonderland. Yes, if by the end it was both hands. <laughs> but well, I mean, we have a few minutes here, Larry, because we okay, we okay, a we at got the top of the hour, so. I'm just, you know, it's one of those typical questions, but I am super curious, you know, just like, you know, getting to know your work now and just sort of, um, and some of the ways you've talked about writing short stories, novels, journalism, creative nonfiction, and essays and such. Like, who are the, I mean, the people that you're looking to right now as like, you're looking to for inspiration and or sort of just like, you got to read these people right now. They could be, they don't have to be contemporary writers, but I'm just, I'm just curious sort of. Well, um, as an audiobook, I just listened to um, Porochista Hakpur's Brown Album essays, and I love them. It's um, just really polished and interesting um, access, a- aspects of the Iranian-American experience. Um, and also, I was, uh, I've was i been talking about Yoko Ogawa's Memory Police, which I just saw was um, optioned for mm. her film. But it's about an island where whole categories of things disappear, like roses or perfume, and these very menacing police enforce it. And then, but there are some people, and once things disappear, people start forgetting, except for some people who get rounded up by, by police or go into hiding. So uh, it's, I don't know, it's our dystopian times. Um, Octavia um, E. Butler's Parable of the Sour, which um, also post apocalyptic. It actually, she wrote it in 1993, but there's a presidential candidate who promises to make America great again. Whoa. Wildfires. It's wild. And actually, um, she hit the New York Times bestseller list 14 years after her death. But I actually, um, people have been recommending her work for a while, and I just started reading it. It just really resonated. Um, I'm looking at my Kindle. Um, I also really enjoyed Leslie Tenorio's The Son of Fortune. It's about uh, this Filipino scammer who finds, you know, Lonely Hearts men online and a sort of uh, sort of son who's trying to figure out life. It's very charming. So. Okay. And also Bridget Quinn. Oh, my Bridget Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my beloved work wife, um, who. Uh, my work wife. No, she's mine. Oh, fine. We'll be, we're at polyamorous W. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so yes, She Votes is a delight. Um, I, I learned it, in fact, and couldn't be more relevant now. Um, and let's see what else. I'm also, I just, uh, and then I just started What Are You Going Through by Sigrid Nunez. I really enjoyed The Friend. And uh, what are you going through is sort of like the cat version. <laughs> in, in, the do- in the friend, she got a dog and her male friend committed suicide. And what are you going through? Oh, oh wait. Yeah, there's a cat and her female friend wants um, to euthanize herself. So that's all, that's all clear from the opening pages. But now I'm realizing they really are sort of like mirror um, books. Hmm. Okay, that's plenty of awesome stuff for sure. Hey. And, and there was one thing actually that I had written down that I forgot to ask you about that I was curious about is the role of exercise and movement in your writing. Because <laughs> you've always kind of been a big advocate of, and, and, you, and what did you, your power hour you referred to? Doesn't it usually start with some physical movement? Well, I, it's pandemic wise, I usually do a dawn hour walk. Um, mm-hmm. But although, yeah, I'm, I'm daylight saving, it's a little hard to get up <laughs> before it, like in the pitch dark. Um, no, I well, power hours do refer to like when I am at, at my best as a writer, but I will, for example, listen to a longer manuscript in progress while I'm going for a walk or a run um, with this PDF to voice app to kind of, again, make the most use out of the time that I have. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll swim or I'll, or I'll, I'll run because, um, as they say, sitting is the new smoking. And so right. it like as much as you think like, I gotta get this finished, I'm gonna sit at my desk for 10 hours a day, but then you feel 
terrible and you eat horribly and that just for me is not the best space in which for me to write and so um as long as i'm mindful and not totally harried and dragged by other responsibilities i do try to get some sort of movement whether it's like i think i was really stressed out right before the novel came out and then i ended up going to the gym again and doing like really silly like workout classes where they played bad music and you're like like clapping and sometimes I'm not going to do doing that for a while but but sometimes you just need something it could be something meditative like swimming or it could be something silly like a kickboxing class I, I mean I think it's an integral part of since since you're right since our job is to sit in the chair I think it's important to not sit in the chair sometimes yeah and oh. I feel like at the grotto there was a whole subculture of swimmers too Oh, right. Bonnie Choi, right, uh, wrote Why We Swim. And then um, Todd was the Dolphin Club. And I just got back from swimming with my kids. So, mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> well, writers. I know. Now you have to do that all virtually, apparently, via the grotto <laughs> crowd. <laughs> yeah. um, well, this has been fantastic, Vanessa. It, as I always do with writers who haven't been out to story for it yet, You've got. To, we'll put you in the lineup if Story for Twenty Twenty One in September happens. So you can come out with Bridget, perhaps. Um, I would love that. I hear all these stories from Larry and Bridget, and it just sounds like a, a lot of fun. Really fun, and then yeah, yeah. it's pretty fun. And this is going to be interesting to see, you know, what, what transpires moving forward. But our plans, as of now, are to actually hold the this festival in. September of 2021. <laughs> so, and then switch back hopefully to March of 2022, which we usually to kind of follow South by Southwest in the, in the schedule of festivals, if that really ever reboots exactly the same way. But anyway, one thing also we do talk about occasionally here is basketball. So we have just final prediction. You've mentioned like when the NBA shut down, so I had an inkling being, especially in the Bay Area, that you might be a fan of the Warriors. Are you a Warriors fan? Are you a Warriors fan? Well, he used to live in the town where I live. So I would go and where I would take my run, I would like look up and I was like, I think that's his house. And then I saw the standard poodle like running on the, on the balcony. And then I saw the poodle like in their family photo. I'm like, Oh, that's. You mean mean Steph? Yeah. Oh, I was like, you referred to him as he. (laughs) Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry. There was only one warrior. (laughs) I I will say this it was funny we were on vacation in Mexico and the Warriors were in the finals right and I could not I was really baffled why everyone there seemed to really be rooting against the Warriors because I'm like in this bubble and then I realized my husband was explaining that it's like sort of like if you win too much everyone just starts to hate you yes Especially if you bring in Kevin Durant, probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that said, uh, I'm, I'm curious, and you can chime in here too, Larry, how bad are the Warriors going to beat the Lakers next year? And oh, how much? <laughs> it'll be so satisfying. You have no idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I have to admit, it's out of my expertise. <laughs> okay. The Lakers just won the NBA she's championship. I'm not, uh, not happy about that. Yet, she's, so. she's not the other secret grotto underworld of Warriors fans, which did exist. <laughs> okay. Wait, it didn't need to be a secret. But there's people I didn't even know. Like um, Susan Ito was a big Warriors. So I'm like, wow. Seriously? Oh, she would go with like her 90-year-old mother. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's just call him he, Larry Rosen, who lives he. in a different place now. <laughs> Don't tell the things <laughs> The other part of San Francisco, so right. Anyway, so it's yeah, a place where you yeah. can where you can get the Warriors on TV. I can <laughs> yeah. say that truthfully when they play. So anyway, finishes out, Larry. Final thoughts. Final thoughts are just to thank Vanessa for <clears throat> being so gracious with her time, and it's great to see you after so long. As for you, Mister Wynn, where will I see you? I don't know. Maybe somewhere near San Francisco at the fest. Maybe oh, at the fest. Vanessa, thanks so very much, and we will recruit you and then see you at the fest. Hey, nice. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm, it was such a pleasure to be chatting with you both today. All right. Well, hey, that was our episode, Larry Rosen and myself and Vanessa Waugh. So we hope you enjoyed it. Like I said at the beginning, go check out more of what Vanessa's doing at dot com. 
Check out all things Treefort at treefortmusicfest.com. We want to thank Eavesdrop Studios. You can find out more about what they're up to at ease-drop.com. And we want to thank Up Is The Down Is The for providing our awesome theme music. Um, hey, we're uh, hanging in there. We head into fall in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of uh, an election cycle. We're trying to keep our sanity and reading some great books like what Vanessa puts out there in the world is one way of doing such things. So... Take care, be well, and in September of 21, we will see you at the fest. Bye-bye.